0: Hey, I'm Matthew Spector, and you're listening to Drinks With Tony.
1: And on the Drinks With Tony Show. Yeah. We'll wait for the muffler to go by. <laughs> it doesn't even sound like a muffler. That sounds like a cat dying on Hillhurst. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Matthew Spector. He's the author of American Dream Machine and That Supreme Sound. He's the founding editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books and also a native of Los Angeles, or as they say, Angelino. Sir,
0: Matthew, how are you? I am 100% Angelino today, coming to you from the parking lot of Goodman Shipping on uh, the that's what we're looking at, right? On on, Los, on Hillhurst in Los Feliz.
1: Is that of, is that of significance to the to the Angelino?
0: I think everything is of significance to the Angelino if you live here long enough. It, it's yeah. it is it is actually kind of amazing how the most insignificant bits of sort of signage and errata. Yeah. It you know it's 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 the same way that we fetishize the, the happy foot, sad foot, right? I was
1: I was going to bring that up. That's one thing. So I've only been here six years, but that's one thing where I'm like. Oh, you know, that's just been on my peripheral. And then I'm like, wait, they're taking that down? No, they can't take that down. But then I learned more about it and
0: how people, like,
1: they start their days going, if it's Happy Foot, they're going to have a happy day. If it's Sad Foot, they'll have a sad day.
0: It's like a coin toss for, you know, for tens of thousands of people at once. Totally. yeah. Yeah.
1: And I and I love that. It's, I come into I come into the Los Angeles culture as kind of an outsider and totally um, trying to understand and embrace as much as
0: possible. It's a very it is a very weird culture in that regard. But I mean, I'm sure people do this in other cities too, right? I mean, in San Francisco, yeah. where you're from, right? Yeah. And I where I lived for quite a while in the in the you know early '90s, and you know, I, I always felt like there were those little things. Like, uh, is 17 Reasons Why still there on the on the corner of Mission and, and 17th? Remember that the thrift store that had the big sign on the top that said oh, right. 17 reasons why? Yeah. Uh, and I've, I, a lot of my mor- my wardrobe in the 90s and 2000s is from that place. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it's part of loving any city is is or or knowing any city is attaching to these little bits of errata that sort of crumble and you know or that collect and then when you know when they vanish you you wind up missing things that you took for granted, right? right. That's that's living.
1: The, and also, this is something that uh, my brain came up with it, with it, within the last week. So tell me, it's just terrible or if it's amazing, I'll pitch it on you first, though. Um, but I was thinking, we really bond with the suffering of where we live. So like, living like so, even, like in San Francisco. When you live in San Francisco you're getting what they call bridge and tunnel people coming in. But it's not it it's kind of a diss, but at the same time, we're not coming to your suburb and like, you know, peeing on your lawn and you know, screaming while you're trying to sleep. It the suffering thing kinda of brings us together.
0: Yeah, whatever the whatever the taste of that suffering is. I mean I, I, I guess I mean, San Francisco, I, I, I was just reading this New York article this morning. It was another one of those, like, tech, you know, my, my life among the tech bros. And thinking that, you know, that, that, that a more dystopic city, you know, and, and I loved, I mean, when I lived in San Francisco, especially, I thought I was never going to leave it. I thought it was paradise on earth. And I definitely, at that time in my life, I think kind of bought into the whole, you know, like, this place is so superior to Southern California in every possible way. And uh, now I, I, I feel like it's netted out a little bit, now that, now that, now that the Bay Area has invented an, an, uh, an uglier human phenotype even than, than L.A. has. I mean, you know, obviously, growing up here, and particularly growing up in and around the movie business, you kind of get, you adjust to the idea that like, oh, you know, L.A., it's that city of shallow douchebags, or at least that's how it's widely perceived. I, I, I don't think that that's as true anymore or maybe even true at all anymore. But you know, obviously, that's the version of LA that that 20, 30 years ago still held sway. That this was, this was somehow a, 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 a place for vacuous people. And, um, um, you know, uh, alas, I, d- I don't think we've cornered the market on that in California anymore.
1: <laughs> well, the thing is, and I've learned, I guess I'm just getting old. You know, getting older and mature or whatever. Um, I don't know. Ask my girlfriend; she'll tell me the opposite. But uh, about the maturity, not the older. She'll tell you anyway. But um, the uh, what do you call it? That you could find the shallow douchebags in any city, anywhere in the world, and it's just
0: y- yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can you know, and, and, and ideally, you can find the 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 loveliness in the city yes. that you're in too. I mean, you know, and I, I think you know, I mean, I, I absolutely adore this place now. And, and uh, but you know, I lived in San Francisco. I lived in New York. I I spent you know my my first novel, which was about time spent in the Midwest in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah in the 80s, and, you know, I was, I remember there was a time when I thought that Columbus, Ohio was, like, the coolest city in America. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, whether or not it was, it was for me. I think it could have been. I've never been to Ohio.
1: As close I've been is, like, Wisconsin and Minnesota, you know, and I, I was, like, sitting there just going, yeah, I could live here, but
0: I wasn't there in winter, so. Yeah, it was brutal in winter, but it did have, like, an insanely cool music scene. Yeah. Like, you know, back in those days when cities were scenes, yeah. you know, and where cities were kind of accumulate, were we about you know, whatever bands, you know, the, like the Minneapolis, you know, Husker Du Replacements thing, the, you know, the Athens, Georgia, you know, and, and Columbus had, had its kind of own iteration of that.
1: I'm trying to remember, it was like uh, Laughing Hyenas from there? and They
0: were from Michigan. Okay. Yeah, La- Laughing Hyenas were from Michigan. I'm, I'm This is like where my, my, the amount of my brain that's taken up with like 80s post-punk and, and yeah. indie rock trivia is really dismaying to me, but uh but no, they they had a fanzine called the, a very important fanzine in the early 80s called The Offense, and it meant that a lot of bands, like the Birthday Party or like the, Co- like when the Cocteau Twins first toured America in, in 1985, they played five American dates. They did Boston, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Columbus. Wow. Yeah. And it was all because this fanzine had been among the first American publications to, to write about them. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Those were the days, they the fan the days, Days, baby. <laughs> they were the days yeah. Yeah. where you where you had a friend who was uh, either an office temp, you know, or I was an office temp. So I was burning through those copy machines, hundred percent,
0: right? Oh, yeah. Or worked at a, at a Kinko's or or a copy cop, right, as they were called in in uh, in Boston, I think. Yeah, yeah. The, the beauty of being able to work
1: in those really low status. Positions, but have other stuff going on. You know, I was busting out, well, some of my last temp jobs, I was busting out um, chapbooks, um, program guides for indie film festivals. It was just burning, they're just like, wow, Tony's working really hard in that copy
0: room. I like, to, I like to think that those kind of, I mean, you know, in the, in the kind of horrible uh, capitalist nightmare, late capitalist nightmare that we're currently living in, you know, I hope that those kind of like low maintenance, low impact Jobs for yeah. uh, for artists still exist. Like you know, I I mean, I mean you know I hope to God that these that that you know the, the, the Uber drivers and Lyft drivers are still finding ways to like you know jot their novels and screenplays on right. cocktail napkins or you know Starbucks napkins and you know yeah. <laughs> as they go. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel bad for that whole economy I because it's it, the worst. Yeah. I mean, it's the worst. I I think that. You know, for for all this kind of clowning around about about 80s indie culture and and the, those kind of shitty jobs that we all had at that age, like they they had a you know they 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 had a they had a function. You know, it's yeah. it's like Jeff Eugenides even writing. I, I love this story where he wrote the Virgin Suicide. I forget he had a, a it was like kind of a a prestige job. It was like like for the. Guggenheim Foundation or something, but it was literally like he was just, you know, it was clerical and he'd be sitting at his laptop all day, you know, ostensibly inputting data or writing letters and, you know, writing, you know, work related letters. And then the moment that eyes were off him, he'd, you know, he'd like pull up his document and start working on his book, you know, um, you know, that's I, I hope it's still possible to steal someone else's time. Right. Yeah. I was I I was a paid writer when I used to go to the
1: bathroom with my notepad and write poetry. Right. And people just thought I had IBS or something. Yeah. But you know, I was just
0: like you walk out. Like, oh. yeah. Yeah. I I worked for a, a toy company in in South San Francisco answering wow. complaint letters from from disappointed, yeah. you know, consumers. That was actually that was actually kind of an amazing job because I had I had discretion over whether I was going to replace the the busted up, you know, when like some kid would write in like, you know, about about their shitty. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't supposed to be as generous with it as I would, but it was, you know, I would just, you know, like write some like like detailed response back to the kid and then like go into the stock room and just like take, you know, and send them these big packages full of it was like my temp Santa gig. That was that was the best and yet weirdly most one of the more spiritually draining uh, gigs of the of the of the you know early '90s for me.
1: There was a, there used to be a zine called Temp Slave. I just remember that. Yes. Do you remember that zine? Yes, I do remember that zine. Yeah, because I was a temp, and they would talk about. I mean, it's, you steal office supplies. The reason you have a stapler and you have ten thousand pens at your house, it wasn't because you bought them. It was because yes. right, right.
0: You liberated them. You. you <laughs> You were you were bunkering in right. supplies that you needed. Yeah, yeah.
1: And then even even nowadays, like a few years ago, I was still doing uh, extra work on right. you know on uh, TV shows and films. Sure. But the main thing about that is making sure you get the second helping of lunch because that is your dinner, right. and you bring it home.
0: Right. It's. it's, it's th- I, I. I. I know the art life yeah. doesn't change, right? So hopefully, all those people at those. Who, who are working at those startups? At those better-heeled startups, are are you know really, really draining the the you know the, the office kitchen and the, you know,
1: right? Exactly. right. Yeah. right. Yeah. You, you got a whole shelf full of uh, perks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow! How about, it's amazing how much half and half you have, but you don't have <laughs> <laughs>
0: don't have anything else. Yeah, yeah. Just a fridge full of half and half containers. I you
1: know. I wonder if uh, you know people in their twenties and stuff now, like listen to this and go, "Oh, that's just really unethical." I don't, I don't know if that's something that they would think that is a problem, but because it wasn't a problem, it was we had corporates right. paying us five bucks an hour and treating us like other shit, and then it was our way to like just contain it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'd, I mean, I think that's true, and and I mean, I I think, I mean, I just hope, I just hope that people in their 20s still want to be artists you know right i mean i i i know that they do right i mean i I thankfully encounter enough of them um but uh you know it's 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 even though you know you you think back on those people who told you i mean surely they told you as they told me like you know it's a hard thing to want to be a writer it's you, you know what's your what's your backup plan and i'm like I should have listened to those people a little harder but I, I think I did listen and I just didn't didn't care
1: at the same time the, you said the word want to be a writer and I think that we kind of have to be writers there's a weird there's the drive is too insane I think
0: yeah well y- yes and you know the only reason I say want to is because you know I'm, I'm always wary of anything that's t- that that makes it sound more you know more high highfalutin than it is I think it's I think it's, it is it is unquestionably a compulsion, right it, like a you know like, <laughs> like masturbation or, 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 or you know any, whatever it is that, that that brings delight. I mean I, I don't think I'd want to reduce it to being just like pure reflex either it, I do I do believe it has some some you know kind of elevated social function, even if it's mildly elevated, right
1: And at the same time, I read a lot of these uh, novels and stuff, and they are masturbation. And you're like, oh, wow, that's good for you that you masturbated, and I'll put this one aside. And
0: I, I think that one can never really square the, the kind of, there's a kind of implicit cognitive dissonance between the fact that there are always a lot of good works of art and really even great works of art that are being kind of neglected by the culture and that there seems to be an, also an unending stream of, of mediocre work too and and, and you know that that um, I guess that's how it's always been I, I don't I don't think that that's I, I, I'm not even sure that that isn't on some level how it I don't want to say how it should be because obviously it's not how we'd want it to be but I think there's something about really really exciting work that should operate a little bit like Sam' dot like it you know that it, it, it should always be a little bit to the to the right of the of the kind of wider cultural conversation you know it's, it's meant to be encountered privately and there's a kind of thrill that, that, that I think everybody, you know, that, 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 that that's the artistic encounter that there's something about it you know or, or a, a version of it you know it's like there's, there's the version of it where you're like wow this is a great book and everybody leaps up and down and, and um, you know that's one experience uh, and then there's the, the one where you sort of feel like this, this is just for me <laughs> this feels like it's just for me, yeah.
1: And then, and at the same time, I adore uh, stuff that I don't like, and I feel that it's written poorly because I go, you know what? I could write poorly because if I if I compared myself to any of the you
0: know my friends and the great writers that I know, I would just shut down and be in my bathtub. One can take one can take permission from bad work as well as from great work I I can remember and I'm I'm happy to name this one because it's a a movie by someone I I do feel is uh, you know great to put it mildly but I can remember going to a screening of Inherent Vice at the Ace and I'd been so looking forward to it I was like Paul Thomas Anderson Thomas Pynchon like this is going to be fucking amazing and just you know uh, being a, a dismayed at how terrible I felt, I just felt felt like a, a misfire, um, to which Anderson, and I've tried with that movie many times since, because that, because I, I you know, I, I at least like every other movie he's ever made there are ones that I love and ones that I have a more contentious relationship with but Inherent Vice is terrible and I I, I woke up the next morning and I literally, and I'd been stuck on a, on a novel that I was trying to write or on a piece of fiction, and I just I woke up the next morning and I thought Bucket If that gets to be A movie in the world Like I, I can I can do this Yeah
1: Yeah Kind of like the punk rock but I, You know Where it was just like Hey they only know One chord But they have But they They go out there With enough confidence And in, in your face Where And then they start To learn their music They're, It's like listening To records over the years And you're like Oh you guys Learned how to play Your music while just showing up to
0: gigs. Yes. And, but, but, you know, that... And, and I, I will say that there is a, a world of difference between, you know, a piece of art that isn't good, but that, that, is, that attempts to be good in good faith, yeah. and a piece of work that's sort of crummy from its, from its inception. And I, I don't find the latter ever very useful. But I do think, you know, that that whatever that punk rock ethos is, and, and, I mean, it's, you know, I think about it in musical terms all the time because I was, you know, I I think about, like, bands that I was in in high school where I couldn't even, I couldn't even attain, like, basic punk rock competence. Like, I used to go to a friend's house and 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 we'd play after school and I was, like, the, the the one guy who couldn't, who just couldn't even get to that, you know? And I, I, and what's funny is that the friends that I would do that with, like went on to become jawbreaker. Um, yeah. So, you know, sometimes in my, in my private moment, they weren't, you know, they were, they were two thirds. It was Adam and, and uh, Blake Schwarzenbach, but I would, I would, you know, I would sometimes, sometimes privately tell myself that I'm like the, the Stu Sutcliffe, <laughs> you know, the, of, of, of jawbreaker. Um, but, you know, but I do think that uh, that ability to kind of keep showing up, you know, and and, and convince yourself, even when you what you were doing is 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 not yet good. Right. And and the you, you know, you have to be able somehow to convince yourself you're doing it right or right enough to keep going. <laughs> no.
1: And, and as we were talking about before we got on the mic, uh, coming from a place of authenticity. And because um, you were on Brett Easton Ellis's podcast, and we were talking a little bit about that, but in the end, there is a there's a heart that comes from.
0: Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, it's certainly I think you know I think I think that um, you know one one thing I will say about about Brett is that, you know I I don't think he's someone that's been able to will himself to write a book he doesn't want to write, and I think that you know there are there are plenty of writers who who do that, um, uh, and. Um, you know, like it, you know, like to play. It,
1: writers will play it safe and not do what their heart is telling them to do, or, or
0: or they'll be stuck. I mean, I think I think this actually happens to writers who are you know who have successful books or a run of successful books, and they sort of feel like God, I have to do something, I have to or produce something, and and um, you know, I have to I have to finish another novel quicker, or you know, um, and uh, you know and, and, and uh, you know, I, I just think it's easy to it, it's easy for any artist to drift off course <laughs>
1: Oh, I feel like I have <laughs>
0: many times Sure, but there's drifting off course productively and there's drifting off course in that way where you get, you get kind of lost I mean, I yeah. think the book that I'm finishing now is about very, you know, writers and filmmakers who've, who've, who all have kind of big silences in their career or, kind of, or who kind of flamed out and it's kind of you know interrogating that 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 experience. You know what what is it that makes people uh, creative people go go run ashore? I need to read that
1: book because I, I feel like I don't I didn't have a big flame. I feel like I had a little flicker and then it went out and it I,
0: I, the, the, it glows just a little bit once in a while and then yeah. it dies. Yeah, well, that's believe me. You know, sometimes that's 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 that's, that's even that is a lot. Yeah, yeah right I mean if you're if you're able to just generate a little light and I think it's you know all of us judge ourselves endlessly in private by our productivity or 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 amount thereof you know it it strikes me that you know it struck me the other day that like I, I last published a novel six years ago like you know that's that's a long time but it isn't really it's not it's not at all a long time I, I, then, and then I look at uh, people like Janet Fitch, who
1: she'll do something. And it's, I, I don't know what the uh, time between Paint It Black and um, her, the first
0: Russian novel, I think it was like yeah. over 10 it years. It was a long time. It was a long time. But Janet, but that book, I mean, there's two things. The yeah, well, I would say there are a couple things about that. I would say Janet, the, the amount of research that must have gone into the Russian books is astonishing. Um, and I'll also say, you know, that Janet is among the most generous writers i have ever encountered just in her in her general dedication to writing anybody's writing you get the sense that she is as dedicated to the writing of her students and her peers almost uh, as she is to her own and that is that is uh and it' sh- i think it shows in in the writing itself i think that there's a generosity to jenna's work that that you know uh it pays, <laughs>
1: and and it's, and I think that's where it comes in. Where she's a she's a she's an utter fan of authors and writing, and I think that's how we kind of all come into it. It's just like if we're not a fan of this whole craft and, and authors did not change our lives when we were younger, I don't think we'd be here. For me, I needed I needed authors to talk to me, and that and that through their novels, and that's what like I was just like, okay, I have to be in this club somehow. And even just talk to them. I didn't know. I didn't even know I had a voice to go beyond that.
0: Yeah, I think that's all. I mean, I, in, in my secret heart, I actually think that's the job. Like you know, there's the there's the famous thing about you know what's the quote about you know the Velvet Underground only sold you know two thousand records, but everybody who bought one went and formed a band. Like I'm yeah. messing up the quote something but, fierce. Yeah, yeah. But I but I've I guess I have I sort of have always felt like I actually felt this from a fairly young age that like the function of good writing is weirdly biological that like you send your book into the world and and the success of it isn't like how many copies did I sell what you know it's does it impel other people to do things <laughs> whatever it is that they do you know and and um you know that's that's uh you know that the I'll, I will say this even though I feel like it risks sounding self-aggrandizing but it's like one of the things about American Dream Machine that's made me happiest is I have heard from people um, both known people and unknown people that American Dream Machine you know did that for them you know I heard that from Anthony Bourdain of all people you know you know uh, yeah that I mean yeah that, that, <laughs> that was a big one but it's like you know you, you're, you're like that's what it's for not and obviously, you know, not not just um, to make other, you know, more famous people notice it, but to make other artists want to make work.
1: Yeah, and to and to attain that attain that um, level of it's not like a level of recognition; it's just a level of appreciation from from one of the greats of you know, I think of our generation,
0: or from somebody that you, or from from a, a writer who isn't established yet. You know, it's again there are there are messages I've gotten and and, you know where there are there's in fact a writer that I was just corresponding with last night who's finishing a novel that you know and I first got to know them because they were like I just read American View Machines, and I thought you know and and his book which is being finished is really 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 good Um, and uh, you know you think that's that's where you get excited you know right you get excited by you know and and the what, what you know has been an 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 arduous but privately thrilling you know process of which the book is just of which their book is just sort of the evidence you know they, um so so he uh so he gets in touch with you because he loved
1: American Dream Machine and then you uh you stayed in touch with him and he said can you read yeah, some pages I,
0: kind of thing is that yeah yes I mean you know I, I mean uh
1: <laughs> so, so anyone out there, just send your pages to Matthew. He's totally stoked. <laughs> no, no,
0: I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I like, I do like hearing from from other writers. I mean, who who, who doesn't? And you know, and, and I and you can't always do it, right? You you just because one is, I mean, drowning in material always. But but like where it's possible, sometimes it is possible. And I, and I do think like I do think it's a good idea for writers to reach out to other writers. Like, I think. I mean politely <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and with the understanding that you may never I mean you know there are people that I know very well that I've sent m- my work to and it's like I know they didn't get to it and I'm like yeah. that is also fine always always because you know you I mean I feel like not only because reading a book takes time and attention but also because I think I, I guess I just feel like I like I, I am so late to get to things I'm like not one of those people that like stays on top of the 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 of anything <laughs> alas <laughs> alas uh but I also sometimes feel like you know there's gr- there can be great pleasure to picking something up years after the fact and be like holy shit how did I miss this this yeah. is amazing and I think you know that's part of the long life of a work of art too I don't think any of us you know the, the publicity cycle for things is so compressed yeah. and making any kind of art is so labor-intensive like, I don't want to write something and have it exist for six weeks. Right. You know? You know? You, you, you like, it's a message in a bottle or many, several messages yeah. in several bottles. Yeah. Yeah. And it's meant to find its shore whenever, when, whenever it's lucky enough to do so. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So um, growing up in Los Angeles and then, and then leaving Los Angeles for a while, What was your relationship with Los Angeles? It sounded like when you're in San Francisco, you're like, oh, man, I ain't going back there. Yeah,
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think because of like most teenagers or like many of them, I felt very, um, you know, awkward and alienated and unhappy. And and for a long time, I thought, oh, the problem is Los Angeles. Like I didn't really I didn't really understand that like there were kind of more intimate structural problems within like my family and my emotional constellation when I was. 15, 16, so I was like, I got to get out of here, I got to go to New York, you know, I got to go I got to go to East to school, you know and um, and so you know, I left LA and I went to college in Massachusetts and then I moved to San Francisco and it was while I was living in San Francisco that I started to be like, oh, like, is kind of cool actually, like, I like LA it turns out, um, I don't know that I want to live there, and then I moved to New York weirdly, because I got a job in New York, I didn't move back to LA until I was almost 40, and um, and it was like, and then I was like, holy shit! Like, I can't believe this city is so amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's beautiful, and it's, you know, kind of got all these kind of cultural, intellectual textures that are rubbing up against each other. Um, you know, and it's got a history that's that's really interesting and compelling, and you know, and it's got an industry that, uh, you know, that I think is defining in some way of of. American experience, you know. I, I feel like there's I, I I find myself continuing to write about the movie business and and kind of being aware that like oh you know people sort of think oh it's about Hollywood so it's it's got to be a certain way right it has to be uh, you know entourage or David Locust or Blade is lays like and and um and I feel like no you know I think I think that there's a kind of people tend to outside L.A. people think about the movie business and by extension LA as being you know almost like they silo it they think of it like you know it's this isolated you know kind of petri dish that breeds its own culture that's hostile to or or at least somewhat at, at best adjacent to the rest of the American experience right and you see that you see certainly see it in in kind of right-wing rhetoric about Hollywood, you know, and, and kind of... But, but I think you, you see it, you know, it, it, it plays itself out in ways that are more subtle throughout, you know, other strands of, of you know, the kind of American fabric as well. And, and, um, and I don't think that's true. I think that, like in a lot of ways, like the what the movie business is and and reflects and the way people are within it, is you know it's just as it's just as intrinsically American and just as interesting um, and just as kind of complicated as you know Washington or Chicago or you know whatever like you know the Jewish experience in Newark, New Jersey. Like there's, you know, there's so much um, there's so much density. <laughs> to what it actually contains.
1: I know and what I found that was really kind of shocking to me, it came in and seeing a you know, being a part of a like a film experience of sorts that I was never, you know, I that was a million miles away from right. what I'd ever experienced. The creativity juices of even even the light, even people who do lighting or even people who do wardrobe. Yeah. They they are they're so passionate about ex- of of the, the just in how in and tricky you know this is in the film industry, but just how their part in the in what goes on frame how it plays and to be around those people who are excited for those for their work
0: and, and I, it, that like stirred my juices to a new level and made me appreciate things yeah that there is a tremendous amount of art that goes into the, that goes into the individual pieces of making a movie and in some weird way when the result I mean, you know, I think certainly you see it well, more across the board in television, right? At the moment, I think you know where we are with the movies. We're looking at, you know, Marvel Comics movies or thing, things that you that that are, if they are art, they're they're pop art, right? I'm not I'm not I'm not here to like belittle those movies exactly, but you know, you like I I can't sort of sort of go, oh, the Joker is is gonna be as much a work of art as the godfather or something it's it's not um but but you know or, i mean I, I don't know that's i mean i'm looking forward to seeing the joker so i'm thinking more more even if you, if you if you aim a lot lower on the pole than that there's still a tremendous amount of art that that is involved in the in the actual making of even a shitty movie a lot of the time
1: yeah and that's what I love about L.A. is the creative juices and the literary community. I already knew that about L.A. coming into L.A. because, uh, I, you know, I would like, new people in the, uh, the writing world of
0: Los Angeles. But
1: kind of coming down here and then, like, meeting more and more.
0: What brought I mean, you know, what, what brought that? I mean, I remember the San Francisco literary community, too, because, you know, which I think was, I think, smaller than in the, in the early, in the late 80s, early 90s. It was a lot smaller. And I think, you know, because it didn't, it didn't, I mean, mostly because, among other things, it didn't have McSweeney's, it didn't have some of the things that kind of, uh, you know, Eggers at that time was, was publishing a, not exactly a zine, but do you remember Might magazine? No, the, but I remember that that was the precursor. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Might was amazing, but, 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 you know, but it was, I didn't know who he was. He didn't, you know, he didn't have that, but, um, and there wasn't, you know, there wasn't uh, Lidquake and all the other, you know, kind of a really amazing things that have, that have built that community, but I think LA didn't have that kind of community at that time either. Oh, interesting. I mean, it had it it for sure had writers, right. but I think there were a little there were a little bit more uh, spaced apart. You know, yeah, um, you know, and, yeah.
1: So that kind of came when there was a coming together.
0: Yeah, although I would also say you know it also had a greater number of independent bookstores then, and contrary to its reputation probably books were kind of a a, a a larger part of of middle class life here just like they were in the rest of the country right I mean you know in the in the sense that that you know like my parents had all kinds of you know literary fiction and you know it was it was like you know back back in that day when that was part of a part of a, a suburban upbringing <laughs> so I wonder whether whether the the uptick in literary community because I think it I think this is probably true in other cities too you know whether it's not partly a a way that we're all kind of circling the wagons because our profession is you know yeah
1: yeah I don't know I mean the San Francisco's lost so many bookstores and and but you know at the same time there's still a solid group of people up there that
0: you still got Green Apple man you know the amazing Green Apple among among others but yeah yeah but yeah it was a good a good town and this is this is certainly a a great one I think at this point i'm yeah, I'm
1: enjoying it <laughs> <laughs> like even just skylight books I mean you can you, you just pop you can walk by I walk by skylight and I'm like, oh wait, a bunch of my friends are in there what's going on? It turns out it's a friend of a friend's author release and yeah. you just walk in and
0: they're really good they're really good people who yeah. you know who run that place and book it it's it's really uh, you know more necessary I mean you know Skylight Book Soup the last bookstore like yeah. you know thank God for these little outposts and then uh, when I first came to LA
1: the Franklin Village and you know I I, I would hang out I, you know like I was just trying to find my ground or you know yeah, and I was like Bourgeois Pig is great you know and then you're right next to Birds which has a great happy hour and then there's Counterpoint Books and I would end up spending more money on books than booze yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> 100% yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah totally
1: I love that little spot. And then I was like, wait, there's more? <laughs> yeah. I think that's my whole life. It's like, but wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're just like, oh wow, this you know, this is okay or wow, this is going really crappy. And then either way it goes, Oh wait, this gets worse or wait this gets better.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. One one is always uh you know, digging one's way yeah. deeper into or out of an experience, depending, right?
1: I don't know if I don't know if we need to to dig a deeper into the dark to find more light, or I'm t- I'm still trying to figure I'm still trying to figure out my spirituality. You know, I'm only fifty; I got a lot of time left. So fortunately, right?
0: Isn't there sort of an like? Right, right around your fifty seventh, fifty eighth birthday is when you get the is when you get the sort of enlightenment package in the mail. Do you? Is that, is I, I don't know. We might have to ask one of our one of our you know. We'll, we'll, I'll ask David Eulin or somebody who's yeah, you know yeah, yeah. a half step ahead of us when we see him next.
1: Yes, because he because when he when I see him I just see Zen. Zen. Yeah. And I don't like. I want some of that.
0: Yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah. He's he's I, he springs to mind because he is one of those people that that. Uh, that, that soothes the soothes the heart to think of him somehow.
1: Yeah. And then, um, when did Los
0: Angeles uh, review a book start? Uh, that would have been 2000. I want to say 2011. I was trying to remember this the other day. Um, you know, when when Tom Lutz. I mean, I I, I think it was 2010 or 2011 okay. that we started working on it. Um, you know, and Tom with Tom Lutz was really the guy who, who had the idea. And I used to see Tom around town at all these things. And yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, he and I had been up, both of us had been up for a, a, a job. But we there was a to to run Ziziva um, when Howard Junker was first thinking of retiring. And it was before he hired oh, really? Oscar and Laura. Yeah, yeah. I, which you know, obviously a brilliant hire. Those guys are fantastic. Yeah, but but uh, you know, I had a very preliminary conversation. And there was that there was a day that Howard Junker emailed the people that were candidates. And he was sort of he, he was like, I've decided that I'm going to keep doing it, you know. And I'd like gone up to San Francisco a couple of times. There had been a, a little bit of hoop jumping involved. Um, and I ran into Tom Lutz, who I knew and I knew Tom had also been up for it. And he was like, hey, did you get that email? I was like, yeah, I got that email, whatever, you know. Um, and Tom was like, was like, yeah, fuck it. Like, I'm, I'm doing my own thing. And I was like, "What, what, what are you doing?" And we started talking. You know, we remember standing there at Kings Road Cafe in Beverly. And he's telling me about his plans for LA Review books, yeah. and uh, and he's like, you know, and he, he shows me the list of people that he's that he's kind of talked to about being contributing editors. And I was like, "I'd be, I'm aboard with this." Yeah. Um, and you know, and, and he and I and uh, Lisa Jane Persky and Evan Kinley and and um, Julie Klein. There were five of us at the very beginning and then some other people that were Kate Wolf and and Clarissa Romano there. You know, it was it was it it took a it took a village. Yeah. Uh, and it was really 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 fun. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that probably has a
1: part to do with bringing the Los Angeles literary community together as well. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I I hope so. I hope so. And 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 really like you know as as much as I was very very happy to be in on the ground floor and and a very energetic part of of lifting it off the ground and, and very consciously, I think doing that like saying that well on the one hand we wanted to kind of you know build bring bring build, build a community and at the same time make sure that that community was not strictly a regional community. you know we were we were going at writers that were not LA based and subjects that were not LA based. I remember the first the first piece that I that I edited and brought in was was a, a piece that Ben Lerner wrote about a Jackson Pollock show in New York. And it was amazing. It was just, I mean, it was right before, it was before Ben had, had published uh, uh, Leaving A Tocha Station. Um, you know, so I didn't, I mean, I knew who he was as a poet and as a as a critic, but I was like, I was just flabbergasted. I was like, man, this is so amazing. Um, and, um, and, but, you know, I don't think we were alone then either, because was, that was when Joe, Joe Donnelly and Laurie Ochoa were doing uh, Slake. Remember Slake, the magazine? They, there was, they had, there was a, that the name of the quarterly was Slake. It was really beautiful, um, but I remember it was like Slake was going to go print, and we were going to go online, and we weren't going to do print. Print. I mean, LARB now does also does print, but that the initial impulse was we're not going to do print, and I think I think that saved us, you know, because we were able to we were able to build it without really having any money at all to do it. I mean, you know, we we just did it by by. Uh, by relying very heavily on the largesse of, of writers and, and donors and um, and it felt really good. It did really feel like oh this is a this is a flagship thing for, for LA literature and, and you know and, and understanding that you know looked at from a distance probably anything can look clubby but we were really intent on, on not being that on bringing and, and also on publishing people that weren't, you know, I like to think that we were very, that we were very pitchable, you know, and there were, there was, there really was a sense of, you know, writers, I mean, I also remember a wonderful, who now, now I think, you know, has some traction, in a, a novelist that people know in Patrick Nathan, but, you know, Patrick Nathan, like, basically sending me an, F, an essay in slush, and my just being like, this is incredible, like, you know, and I think that, those were the moments that I was, you know, and he's not LA-based either, he's Minneapolis-based, but you know writers need that writers need a place and and you know i don't know what that LARP i'm not in the day-to-day of larb anymore so i don't i don't know what i mean i know that those editors are we were overwhelmed even then you know there's volume of submissions and there's time it takes to edit the piece i mean everything there took forever because because no one (laughs) because no one was getting paid least of all ourselves but um but i think like those you know that 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 is important. It is important that writers who are out there writing and, you know, working on pieces and who haven't published yet feel like there's a place they can go. <laughs> you know? Yeah.
1: And, and what's really cool about that is what if uh, Tom or you got the Zizava gig? Do you think there would be a LARB? I mean, the, the, it's the beautiful nose I find in life.
0: That yeah, yeah, I mean, honestly, I think Tom would have built Larb no matter what. I, I think he's he's got a um, a dedication to that mission that 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 was, has been there from from go. Um, but always with these things, there's you know, there's a, it takes a, a a tremendous amount of accidental luck to make anything good happen, right? It's that's the you know one of the people that I, that Lisa Jane, who was the, you know, the art editor and, and really like, a, you know, one of the LARB founders had been um, kind of a part of the whole CBGB scene in the, in the, yeah, she was the co-founder of a zine called the New York Rocker. And, um, you know, she used to like act, she, there was a play that she did with Divine every night, you know, and, and she was really absolute ground zero for all of that, right? For suicide and Blondie. And, you know, she has all these great photos of it. And, and I just, like, I'm always struck when I talk with her or when I hear her talk with other people who were there at the kind of provisional nature of what was it that made that scene, what is it that makes any scene happen. And there's always just accident involved. It's never only accident, but it's never without, uh, you know, not, never without accident.
1: And also the 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 drive of a couple people just going, you know what, we're doing this, we have nothing, we don't know what, the, well, not, not in all cases, right. but it's just like, you know, especially in the kind of DIY ethic, right. we don't know what we're doing, but we love this so much, we have to be a part of
0: it, let's go. Right. And you, that goes back to what I, what I think we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, the, 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 the way that art generates other art. You know, as I think any writer also knows what it's like to be at home and be like, what, what am I doing this for? Like, yeah. and, and that, that feeling of disconnection where, you know, you always have to find ways to invent, you know, a, a feeling that there's some someone on the other side. Yeah. Right. Cause otherwise you get discouraged. Yeah. We all do. That happens even, you know? Yeah.
1: I mean, I think drinks with Tony is more therapy for me than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: for me too, doctor. <laughs>
1: Because it's just like i mean sometimes it's just so hard to sync up schedules you know but then we put it we, we put a little well this is going to be the, the, the little structure to it well this is when we can meet this is when it will air and it's just like oh that's there and you know because as writers I, I feel like i'm always kind of like my my brain is like 15 different places of these different projects where am i at and then i could put a you know a label on things i'm going to be in boston in a a uh, few weeks. So what I did is I got in touch with the college radio stations and I was just like, hey, I'm a writer, you know, and if you ever need a guy. And one of them got back to me and they're, like, and they're like, yeah, we'd love to have you on the morning show. I'm like, great. I'm just plugging in. I, you know, if you're, if you're a little, if you're a podcast out of your mom's bedroom, I'll be there at 2 p.m. and I hope you have
0: cereal, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, I mean, again, it's, I, I think it's, I think it's I think the ways that writers find their place in the world, not just in their study, right, but, like, in the in the world, outside in the world, um, is, uh, you know, there, there are a million ways to do it. And I, I find this way of yours particularly admirable. Uh, you know, I, I feel like logi- I'm so bad at logistics. Like, you know, I'm, I'm truly just, like, I don't, I, for reasons that I'll never understand, I don't really keep a calendar. I just kind of write. Like, if it's really important, I put it in my phone. Yeah. If it's semi-important, I just kind of hold it loosely in my head. Yeah. And, uh, you know, most of the time I just write shit down on random scraps of paper and yep. let them kind of, like, f- fall underneath my desk. Yeah. Where I forget about them until someone texts me and is like, dude, are we still on? And I'm like, uh, Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, it's really funny. So, um, you know, as I tape like these interviews, like sometimes people are really overcautious and they're, you know, I'll get them note that it's like we're on for two weeks. Right. Right. We're on for like two days from now. Right. We're on for tomorrow. Almost like they're not sure I'm going to show up. But like like with you, I think we talked maybe three, like four weeks ago. I was just like, here's our time. And we didn't say another word. We were just here that that's how it rolls.
0: Yeah. Well, of course, I wasn't going to blow it, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> I don't know what it is cuz th- those are the um, and it, that happens with more of the it tends to be with more of the, the more successful writers or, you know, the more the higher up. It's just like 2 months out, you make a date and a time, and no one talks to each other and you just both show up.
0: Yeah. It's, it's not that it's not that complicated. Yeah. 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 And it's and I think, you know, look, uh, a partly because I like most writers spend most of my time talking to imaginary people, you know uh, I like it I like, it turns out I like getting outside
1: getting outside is so awesome
0: yeah
1: yeah well, um now now, going back to like writing about the Los Angeles experience and yeah. going back into that um, what, what keeps what keeps what 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 keeps intriguing you about that? I think we've talked about that already, yeah. but you know it's a yeah.
0: little... well, I mean I guess I, I am part of it there 's an interesting concatenation for me of um nostalgia you know i mean i 'm finishing one book and I also just sold a proposal that for a book that looks like it 's going to be quite long and historical and require a lot of like research and digging and stuff um, which is going to be sort of about the the story of how the movies died in as kind of a defining feature of of american cultural life like you know and and it 'll it 's going to be both a memoir because i I really grew up very. Embedded in the industry, and and you know have worked in it in all these different capacities, but it's also to me a story about about capitalism and about kind of the the transformation from um, what you know what used to be you know the kind of the bedrock of at least the American ideal, which is that you know a person a person whether that's an artist or a business person like has an idea, and they they you know through will and good historical good fortune and also sometimes you know i mean one can't really separate the story of the last century from the story of white supremacy unfortunately so you know there's that has to come into it too about how the business marginalized you know non-white artists in ways that are really quite terrible to consider um you know but also i think that has gone away and and in other words we now deal with a kind of top-down corporate capitalism where you know instead of a filmmaker has an idea or a producer has an idea and they nurture it and they build it and they take it to the they take it to the you know financial lords and 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 bankroll it you know it it has become a matter where you know the kind of the, there are a few corporations that control pieces of intellectual property and they just basically franchise them. And what is that? Like and I and I do think like we see this split in every other, you know, in in parts of American life that have no nothing to do with with the movies, you know? It's like are you are you a baseball fan, yeah? Oh, yeah. Giants fan, right? Yeah, yeah. So you look at the ways that there are players who are getting paid, you know, 25 or 30 million dollars a year and there are cost controls Players who are pre-arbitration, right? Who are making, you know, less than a million dollars, and you realize that the entire sport, and this is like the movies, a metaphor for what's happening all over. You know, it, 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 you know, it's 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 a variation on the gig economy, where you basically have, you know, people who are wildly underpaid and people who are wildly overpaid, and that middle, which you know, used to be kind of a kind of like a A decaying fabric is now this void it's like you know there is no middle there is no middle and I think that you know and I think that the movies writing about the movies and writing about Los Angeles frankly because this is a city that you know even apart from the movies where you know the homeless crisis and the kind of economic gulfs that are opening up between you know people in Santa Monica and Silver Lake and uh, you know increasingly an increasing number of of displaced people is you know that they're, they're so so i i think that um on the one hand i think it's this kind of operatic world that i can examine in writing um that does make for good storytelling and you know and there's another part of it too which i also think is kind of common to Many, if not most writers, which is, you know, a, 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 a sadness over what you see disappearing. You know, right? I mean, I, I, I like writers who have at least a little bit of a sense of elegy in what they're doing. Um, you know, and, um, you know, even if that thing that's disappearing is, is in part um, horrible. <laughs> you know, yeah. So it's, you know, which is all just a long-form way of saying Uh, I find LA generates a very useful set of mixed feelings in me and you know anywhere you have powerful enough mixed feelings you can come up with a a piece of writing or many pieces of writing that will uh, that will take flight I think
1: that's a beautiful ending Matthew thank you so much for being on the show thanks for having me dude (laughs) that
0: was perfect thanks I don't
1: know what it is or just something. Matthew Spector on Drinks with Tony. Check out his novels, That Summertime Sound and American Dream Machine. Hey, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next Wednesday on the show.